0: When uh, you think about the book of Revelation, uh, what comes to mind? Way out, wacky imagery, scary beasts, confronting scenes revealing the end of the world as we know it, endless repetition of numbers like four and seven, the so-called devil's number, 666. The book's influence, perhaps, on rather ordinary Hollywood apocalyptic movies. In fact, the very first book of the Bible I read in its entirety was the Revelation of St. John the Divine, as it was titled in the King James Version. I hastily went out to buy from Dimmicks after watching the 1976 film, The Omen, starring Gregory Peck. It was a horrible film in which a child who had been born with the so-called devil's number, 666, emblazoned on his head would steer mankind down the road to hellfire. As his evil flourishes in a world of hate, the ominous biblical prophecies slowly begin falling into place. Well, that movie absolutely categorically spooked me out. And and there were subsequent uh, remakes of it. But when you think about the book of Revelation, what comes to mind? Well I suggest that before we look at Revelation 5 that we go back to the opening verses of the Revelation of John in chapter 1 verse 1 to remind ourselves truly of what the purpose of the book is and for us to keep this firmly in our minds as we will go on to look at chapter 5 today. Uh, And let me read to you the opening verses we heard a fortnight ago to help orientate our thinking about this, the last and the most Christological book of the Bible. Revelation 1, chapter 1 reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Well, for those of us who were here last week, David Crane took us through chapter four, in which John of Patmos is invited up into heaven before a kaleidoscope of images, colours and sounds. John vividly describes for us the scene in the heavenly presence, the throne, the spirit before the throne in the form of the seven torches, the sea of glass, The four living creatures and the 24 elders. There they all are, ceaselessly praising God in His holiness. Holy, 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 the Lord God the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Well, what we also see and experience is the place where God is praised because of who He is, the Almighty the creator of the world there is god on his throne and he is being worshipped and praised as he rightly deserved chapter 5 steers our attention from being centered on god to jesus himself for in this chapter jesus takes control of the future both as judge and redeemer of the world jesus now becomes the central figure in revelation 5 Here is the transfer of the authority from God to the Lamb, to Jesus, the one who is worthy to take the reins of the end times when the final triumph of God will take place on that day when those who have trusted in Christ and called upon his name as their saviour by faith alone will be raised with him for eternity. The one sitting on the throne Is God, the King of Kings, the exalted Lord of the universe. And there he is, holding a sealed scroll with seven seals and text written on both sides. Now, that was a very unusual image to have a text written on both sides. It just didn't form part of the way text was recorded in ancient Near East culture. The one sitting on the throne, there he is holding the seal scroll with text written on both sides. Now I suppose our first inclination is to wonder what is contained on this scroll. Who is the one who is going to open it? I had a hunch that with it being written on both sides, it's a bit like that image of a two-edged sword. In other words, something which will present both good and bad consequences for the, a list, perhaps, of those who will be saved and those who are going to face eternal judgment. We all know what it's like when there's great anticipation leading up to the opening of a, a special envelope or an announcement. Just think back to the Oscars earlier this year. Their veteran actors Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were holding the sealed envelope when boom, it was the biggest mix up in Oscar's history, which saw La La Land announced the winner of the night's greatest prize for best picture. Well, we're far from La La Land in Revelation 5. We're in heaven, and there is God, as it tells us in the text, and there is God holding the scroll in his hands. And I just want to point out about when we think of something being held in his hands, it's not clutched in his hands as if he were the keeper of the contents, not wanting anyone but himself to have the authority to reveal its contents, as we saw with the envelope and the Oscars. Actually, the original Greek text shows us this scroll with its seven seals as balancing in or upon God's open, outstretched right hand, awaiting the one who is worthy to take it. John then sees and hears a mighty angel like a spokesman for the heavenly council proclaiming a divine decree. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals in verse 2? And the tension builds in verse 3 when we're told that by John, we're told that no one in heaven, or or earth, or under the earth, worthy is worthy to open the scroll or to break its seals. And the crescendo rises further when we see John's significant outmo- uh, out, um, out, outpouring, emotional outpouring. He's brought to tears because it appears that no one is worthy to look in to this scroll. Well. I'm afraid to tell you, you'll have to read ahead yourselves the next three chapters to find out what happens when each of those seven seals is opened. For uh, now, our attention is shifted in the text from the scroll to the one who is worthy both to take it and to open it. And have you noticed that worthy, axios in Greek, is a recurring word? Five of the six uh, uses of this word worthy in the book of Revelation occurs in the two chapters we've been looking at, this and last Sunday. And worthy is not limited to a moral or spiritual worthiness, but it goes further in the original language. It's an inherent sufficiency that enables someone to accept the full authority that is being handed over. So with this worthiness, that is the transfer of authority in mind, One of the 24 elders reassures devastated John. He describes the worthy one for John using strong Old Testament messianic titles. Can you perhaps pick them up in the text before you? The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. Now, firstly, from Genesis 49, verse 9, there's the Lion of Judah, a figurative image for power and strength and a symbol, we also find, of the Divinic, Davidic throne in 1 Kings, chapter 10. The second reference is a variation from Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 10, the root of Jesse. King David is from the root of Jesse, a highly kingly line, and that is central to Jesus' genealogy, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. And the other point to stress is that only the messianic figure is entitled to take and open the scroll, for he is the one who has conquered and totally subjugated death. Jesus Christ is both of the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. He is the royal messiah who is ruling through his sacrificial death. Now, if you look at verse 6, there is a turn in the chapter. With our heads filled with the images of a fierce lion and kingly genealogy of one worthy to take the scroll, there's an amazing shift. It says in verse 6, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb, standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth from a lion from king's lineage we're seeing what john is seeing and it's mind-blowing stuff four living creatures or heavenly beings the elders a lamb as if it had been slaughtered well if you can't remember each of those uh, creatures from last week they appear actually in this in this church both in the brass cross Uh, above the Lord's table there and painted on the east wall of the sanctuary. In fact, this parish church's emblem is represented by one of those four creatures Uh, and they've all been um, assigned to each of the four gospels. As an aside, the first living creature is like a lion used as a symbol of St. Mark and the second is like an ox for St. Luke. The third living creature is a face like a human face associated with St. Matthew And, of course, the fourth living creature is a flying eagle, none other than St. John. And uh, hence, in many churches, the lectern is a symbol of St. John. And these four images from Revelation have been adopted into uh, uh, the four Gospels. And often the number four in the Bible is used to represent the four corners of the earth in Isaiah 11 and Revelation 20. And it's worth pointing out that here in Revelation 5 verse 9, there are four terms to represent Jesus' atoning work for the saints, as it says in front of you, but it actually means Christian people, Christian believers, who are from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And that captures that image of reaching out into all people uh, in all corners of the earth, just as the gospel representation So let's then more specifically get back to Revelation 5. There's the dilemma for us. How can we process process the switch from the Lion of Judah to the slaughtered lamb being the same figure standing amongst the uh, throne and the elders? Slaughtered and standing are a contradiction. And furthermore, we think typically of a lamb as innocent, submissive, meek, And in Old Testament times, an animal set aside for a sacrifice. So what is there before us is a superb transformation. The Lion of Judah has conquered not through the might of war or military prowess, but through the slaughtered sacrifice of the lamb. The key player in Revelation is from this point the immolated lamb who conquers the forces of evil and death through humility selflessness, and sacrifice, if you can see in verses 5 and 6 and 9 and 10. And what a paradox that is. What an amazing outworking of redemptive history. And picture it like this. The lion, now as the slain paschal lamb, Isaiah 53, has won a great victory over death and sin. Christ is likened to both the Passover lamb of Exodus and the suffering servant lamb of Isaiah. And verse six presents the defeat that is really the conquest, the crucified one, the one who was dead, buried and raised now assertively takes the reins of history, whose blood ransomed us and gave us freedom, purchasing us to be part of God's eternal possession. He alone is the worthy one as we see this stupendous scene in verse 7. He is the one who goes to the Father, takes the scroll from the outstretched palm of the one seated on the throne, and all heaven responds in a chorus of praise. There before John is the slaughtered lamb, Jesus, standing beside the throne, encircled by the celestial beings, when they all, the living creatures, the 24 elders, fall before him, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what bursts forth is countless praise for the Lord Jesus and God. This chapter concludes not not just with the worship of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus but the worship of God and the lamb in the whole throne room. And this ties together chapters four and five of Revelation. God and Jesus, the creator and the redeemer, together are worshipped with all the praise that is worthy of them. We see all angels, the living creatures, and the elders in their myriads and myriads, their thousands and thousands, singing with full voice, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. So with this amazing picture of ecstatic worship before you, I wish us all to consider whether we attribute due honour and praise and adoration to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Creator and Redeemer. Do we ascribe due praise and honour to the one who is worthy I've seen both ends of this scale in inappropriately informal styles of worship, where we casually put ourselves on the same level as our Lord, as if He's our backslapping best mate. And on the flip side, I've experienced such outwardly reverent displays of worship, which can tend to be more about the choreography and the performance over what is the true place of the worshipper's hearts. Are we truly mindful of where? We stand before God. When I was a little boy and we used to go up to the Temple Emmanuel in Ocean Street uh, for the prescribed Jewish High Holy Days, I was struck by an inscription above the ark in the centre of the shul. And the ark contained the scroll of the Torah, the five books of Moses. And this inscription comes from the Talmud. And this is what it read both in Hebrew and English above the ark know before whom thou dost stand and that has resonated with me my entire life those words might not be written on the walls of this church but they are still worth considering how aware are we of what it means to stand before God and more than that how often are we aware of the fact that we stand before him and on the, and on that, and on the day of Jesus' return when all the living and the dead will be called to account? These words are a reminder that we are always in the presence of God, especially when we gather in his holy name to worship him with all our hearts and with all our soul and with all our strength and as such we are to conduct ourselves accordingly. Each of us stands before God, not just here at St. Mark's on a Sunday, but in all places and at all times, at work, at home, when we are socialising, and indeed when we're just at home by ourselves. Most of us come to worship here once a week, but what happens after the last Amen and we've greeted the clergy at the door? What happens when we leave St Mark's? What happens when we return to our day-to-day lives, filled with the commonplace happenings of our daily and weekly routines? It's a little expedient, isn't it, to forget God when our daily lives are just so busy, we get distracted. Keeping Jesus in the forefront of our minds and in our hearts isn't always easy. So there are a few ways that I'd like to suggest that may just help keep us, keep Christ in our sights beyond our Sunday worship. And I know many here today are already doing uh, some of these things. Perhaps uh, if you haven't done so already, you might like to join one of the St Mark's growth groups. You don't have to wait to make it a New Year's resolution. Have a chat to Michael or David and sign up for one this week. Try one out and see what it's like. Jock McLean runs a men's prayer group who meets here every uh, Tuesday at 5.15 for an hour. So perhaps the men here might like to think about joining that. Sign up for the daily devotional emails the rector sends out each morning. Is there someone here in church that you could meet up with regularly, once a week perhaps, to read the Bible? Are you in a routine of having a daily quiet time? Reading the Bible and praying. Like fitness, once you're into this routine, it makes a world of difference and you couldn't imagine not doing it as part of your daily daily experience. In a few moments, we will share in the Holy Meal of the Lord's Supper. And at 8am at the uh, traditional service, we pray this prayer of humble access every week from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And I'm going to read it to you. And it goes like this, and it sums it all up so perfectly. We do not come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. May we come to the Lord's table this morning with our palms open, Understanding that we are not worthy to take the sacrament, but we can gratefully receive it only by the sacrifice of the only worthy one, the slaughtered lamb, and by his blood, as Jesus ransomed for God all Christian believers from every tribe and language and people and nation. And may we look to that day, joining the heavenly throng singing, To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might for ever and ever. Amen.